0: All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of React Roundup. I am T.J. Van Toll, and with me today on the panel, we have Paige Niedringhaus. Hey, everybody. And Jack Harrington. Hello. And our special guest today is Evitar Alon. Evitar, why don't you say hi to everybody. Tell people what you do, why you're famous, all those good sorts of things.
1: Hi, everyone. Thank you for having me here. So I'm Evitar. I'm a front-end engineer at Facebook, mostly working on open source libraries during my free time. One of those is Vest, which I wanna be talking about today. Apart from that, in my free time, I volunteer in a local tech community that introduces uh, new developers to their first open source contributions, which is pretty cool.
2: When I went freelance, I was still only a few years into my development career. My first contract, I was paid 60 bucks an hour. Due to feedback from my friends, I raised it to 120 bucks an hour on the next contract. And due to the podcasts I was involved in and the screencasts I had made in the past, I started getting calls from people I'd never even heard of who wanted me to do development work for them because I had done that kind of work or talked about or demonstrated that kind of work in the videos and podcasts that I was making. Within a year, I was able to more than double my freelancing rates and I had more work than I could handle. If you're thinking about freelancing or have a profitable but not busy or fulfilling freelance practice, let me show you how to do it in my Dev Heroes Accelerator. Dev heroes aren't just people who devs admire, they're also people who deliver for clients who know, like, and trust them. Let me help you double your income and fill your slowdowns. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. Very fun. Well, so there's a
0: lot we want to talk about, but maybe we could just start with Vest. So maybe you could start by just giving an introduction to people that haven't heard from it, You know what it is, what it does, mm-hmm. all that, that good sort of stuff. So yeah,
1: Vest is an open source validations framework. So form validation framework. Most of us have dealt as open source as frontend developers with form validation during our career, and it's never been easy. It gets it gets better with new APIs and new libraries, but I think it always ends up being frustrating both to new and experienced developers when they uh, meet some corner cases. And working on Vest, I try to take some new approach, which is take a familiar pattern that people already know and already use, which is the pattern of unit testing frameworks such as Mocha or Jest, so hence the name Vest Validation Test, and basically try to convert it and transform it to the world of form validations. So as you would write your testing suite in Jest, you could write your form validations in a similar suite that holds all your uh, validation data but not your form data. This is not a form state library, but a validation state library. So this is a big distinction from all the rest.
0: Yeah, no, this is interesting stuff. It's It blows my mind a little bit because I, I mean, I've been writing form validation since like the old Internet Explorer days, and I haven't seen an approach truly like this. I imagine some of this, like, <laughs> does it make... Unit testing than your validation, like because it's almost like your code you write to actually create the validations almost like our unit tests. So then, do you then unit test those presumably as well? Does it make it easier to write those?
1: So yeah, one one of the main benefits you get from best is that you have this very clear contract between how you write your validations and how the how your feature uh, behaves, and this makes it really easy um, to also unit test that. So one one question many people ask me is, do you run this in production? Unit tests are not supposed to be run in production. So no. Even though internally it is built very much like a unit testing framework, it is not a unit testing framework. But you can use um, you can write unit tests for what you do in invest. And more specifically, it makes it really easy because you don't have to deal just with all the integrations and and key tr- key presses and blurs and whatever. You just insert some data and you validate what comes out, or you test what comes out. So it makes it really easy to just validate your to just test your validation logic. And I'm always gonna get I'm always confused between testing val- and validation because it's pretty much the same to me.
3: Yeah, I was gonna ask how the how does this work with formic or React Hook Form or one of those?
1: So yeah. Uh, React Hook Form is an excellent library. I've never uh, dealt with Formic, actually, but React Hook Form is an excellent form state management library, and they actually have a resolver for Vest. So about uh, six months ago, the author of Hook Form approached me and asked me if I, if they could write a resolver for Vest, and they did. And so many of the people who actually use um, Vest come through the form uh, through the Hook Form website. Other than that, you can basically hook it to whatever form validation or form state library that handles some external outputs. I believe I believe that Formic does as well.
3: I haven't seen resolvers when it comes to React Hook Form. How how does that work? So do you like initialize it with a resolver that then points mm-hmm. to
1: Vest? Okay. So yes. So basically, they have a completely different repository that has all those integration that they wrote to Yup. and and Vest and Zod and many others. And basically you can initialize your, um, your hook form with one of those resolvers and then you can approach some other method of validation because hook form is very basic in terms of what it gives you and the others tend to give you a lot more. If you are more interested in schema validation, for example, you could use Yep or Zod. And if you're more interested in a suite based approach, which is only best at the moment, you could use best. Very cool.
3: And so how does this work when it comes to valid? Uh, It sounds like it it would be ideal for validating the relationships between data. Like, hey, if this is set, this also has to be set. And is that what you're targeting, kind of making that, exposing that to make it more easy to understand?
1: So... Um, Maybe maybe we should first describe the different approaches to form validation in general. And the way I see it, we have three different approaches. We have the rule-based approach or the metrics approach, which is basically a function that returns you whether a field has some kind of value. For example, is a valid email or is a number or whatever it is. And there are numerous libraries for it, such as Validator.js, which are the best at this, I think. Then you have the second kind of uh, form validation libraries, which are uh, schema validation libraries such as Yep or Zod or many others uh, that basically take a schema and try to validate your data set and matches this schema. And this gives you a lot of flexibility, but it also adds a lot of constraint because it basically. It doesn't deal with interactions. It doesn't deal with optional fields very easily. You have to manually set whatever it is that you want to do. And then there's the third type, which is uh, a UI first form validation library, or basically a uh, form state management library, such as Formic or Hookform and many others that handle the state for you, but it comes with a cost. And the cost is they usually manage either the interaction you have, so you have to put something on your elements and then they give you back the results of the data. So they control the event handlers or otherwise they have their own components that you have to use inside your your form, which means that it's going to be hard to migrate to a new library. For example, if I want to migrate from Angular to React, say. And VEST takes a completely different approach from all of these. It gives you the comfort state form validation libraries without being tied to one specific framework or another, but it still gives you all the flexibility you would get in schema validation or else. Because what it does, it it takes your data and you specify which field has changed. That's all you have to specify and internally vest just calculates which which fields need to be validated, and it appends it to your validation state. And what you get back is a validation state that, uh, that you could use in any way you want, in any framework you want, even if you do it on Node or React or Angular or whatever. So this is the main difference, and this, I think, uh, pretty much sums up the answer to your question. Very cool.
0: So this is then not framework specific at all then, since you're just adding validation. So you could use this with Angular, with Vue, with whatever, correct? Yes, exactly. Interesting. Angular? What are you talking about Angular on the React Roundup <laughs> podcast? <for? laughs> yeah. What about? I'm, I'm so I'm curious. What about like validations? Do you tackle like cl- uh, server versus client validations at all in your library? Is best specifically for the client? How, how do you approach that?
1: So when I first started, started working on vest it was uh it was actually named uh differently it was passable and I was working on it uh, when I worked at fiber.com and my initial idea was we have to have a way to handle uh, validations in a way that's that's shared between the browser and the server because at the moment it was it was unmanageable. We were getting bugs from all over the place because somebody changed the field in a client and some, and they forgot to edit in the server and stuff like that. And I came up with this as a, an initial solution to working with validations both on a server and the client. So yes, whatever runs JavaScript can run best. There are different distinctions that you have to make um, because VEST itself is stateful. It doesn't use a React state, but an internal state that has your validation state at the moment. So for example, you cannot persist that state in the server because then you would get like collision between users and memory and data leak. But other than that, when you keep this in mind and handle it correctly, it works exactly the same both in the server and the client. Very cool. So
4: how did you go about starting to build this? Did you start building it in in JavaScript, in TypeScript, in something else entirely? What was the the initial approach, I
1: guess? I started working on Vest uh, in just in vanilla JavaScript. It was, I think, twenty seventeen. And so I started working on Vest back in twenty seventeen, just in plain vanilla JavaScript. But I was always having to And I kept the types uh, written manually and separated for hints and for users who actually use TypeScript. And it was getting very tedious and I would get like very subtle bugs every now and then that were just annoying to handle with because I had to keep track manually of what type everything returns and I had to do it like manually. And a couple months ago, I decided that I'm done with it and I started working on a new version of Vest. Which is written completely in TypeScript. It's a monorepo of different packages that compose Vest. The user doesn't have to install all of those; um, they have to just install Vest, and everything comes together. And it was a really, really hard process. I almost gave up, like I think four times, working on it. But and now it's starting getting getting useful because the, all the types are in place. Everything is working. And I still have to maintain the, the types for all the versions of TypeScript because the current version of TypeScript has some features that are very useful for what I do in best. But other than that, it's it's looking good.
4: Nice. So is this your first time making, I guess, uh, an NPM package or a library for other people to use?
1: So I, I maintain quite a few packages. A few of them are actually React components. I have an emoji picker and a toast notification library. That have their decent amount of users. Vest is not my most used package, even though it's my most my most loved package. Uh, it it is not my first package that I've been working on, you're but not, it is one that I what. You're not supposed to have a favorite package. You're supposed <laughs> to love them all equally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I've I've given way less love to my emoji picker, but ah, somehow it grew to emoji. thousands of consumers. <laughs> yes, <Yeah>. sad sad <laughs> emoji. <laughs> But people love emoji pickers. So it just works for other people. But so no, this is not the first package that I've been working on and not the first package that I've been publishing. But it did teach me a lot about writing interfaces for other developers.
4: Yeah, that's what I was a little bit curious about is I've only been on the consumer side of downloading libraries and packages, but I've never actually had to make one or maintain one. And I was wondering, you know, what kind of issues do you uh, encounter as a, a library maker or what kind of, I guess, where where do you even get started learning how to do that?
1: <laughs> a lot of trial and error. Um, <laughs> basically, I, I found myself begging my head uh, against the wall several times a week, um, trying to figure out how to work with stuff and how to make stuff happen. The most frustrating thing I've encou- encountered recently is the exports API in package.json. I just can't figure it out. Maybe maybe someone in the audience will come and help me. Um, but this is usually a matter of trial and error. Getting, getting things right and playing with the interface. Now, it has two different issues working on packages for other consumers because there's the technical side which you can eventually figure out reading enough docs or hacking it around, but there is the other side that's more dangerous and more difficult which is basically the API design and what you do uh, for the users. Because once you add something and make it production, you can't remove it easily. You have to keep it forever and you have to maintain it. So you can't just add new features or new functions or new interfaces for people to use if you're not 100% sure about them. And one of the features that I was trying to add to VEST, which is a simple question, is valid? took me four years to get right. Yes, it took me four years to get right because apparently is valid is not the negation of is invalid. A form could be invalid because it's not filled yet, but it doesn't mean that it's not valid and you should highlight everything in red. So it took me a lot of time to get this one right, especially when you deal with async validations, uh, I mean, stuff that comes from the server or fields that the user hasn't interacted with. Uh, yet. So you have to be very careful when adding new interfaces to your packages. And this is the most important thing, I think.
4: It's funny that you say that because I've just recently, I encountered that on, I think, some some website that I was registering for. I hadn't filled in my email address yet, and it was already giving me the red bar saying that it needed a valid Mm -hmm. email. So how did you how did you address that for you know forms that hadn't been filled out that a user hadn't even begun working in to not show them those kinds of error messages
1: so i do two things and the most basic use case is you don't have to care about it so you only highlight fields that are that have that the user has interacted with so far but there's a problem because if the user wants to know if the form in its entirety is valid or invalid, there is a problem because you cannot ask about each and every one of the field if it's valid because most of them most of them won't be if the user hasn't interacted them with uh, yet. So, what I had to do is mostly flip the the obvious most form validation libraries and usually as we think about form validation libraries and forms in general, we treat fields. As optional, unless um, uh, unless specifically required, and just by flipping this uh, default and saying everything expressed within vest is uh, is required, and you have to say what is optional whenever you initialize your switch. If you have something uh, that's optional, you don't have to. Most don't. Um, but if you if you have something that's optional, whenever you initialize the suite, I can very easily know. Um, whether the form in its entirety is value or not, because even if something hasn't been interacted with, I can very easily go to, is it required? Okay, if it's required, the form is probably not valid yet. The other fields, no, they haven't been interacted with yet.
0: So one other question I have is, since you spent a lot of time in the form space, forms in general are something that a lot of developers, myself included, struggle with. I'm curious like, if you have any, like common mistakes that you see people make with forms that you'd like to point out like for our listeners like things they might be doing or recommendations you might have around form form validation like cuz all of us fill out online forms all of us are frustrated by it like what are some of your like pet peeves that you want people to be more aware of
1: so the most obvious one and this is not a user experience one but just a security one please don't just validate in the client, also validate on the server. If you have to do one, validate on the server. That's the most important one. Uh, don't use VEST, don't do anything, just validate on the server, please. So this it might is be ex- worth.
0: It might be worth explaining why for, for any like, yeah. beginners listening to this that might not know.
1: Definitely. So what we have are usually two kinds of validations. We have form validations on the server and we have them on the client now on the client we usually do form validation for um, user experience we want to we want the user to know they're doing something wrong before they click submit and get a response from the server so they can fix it and don't have to wait but when you validate on the server it is for your own security. It's for integrity of the data. It's so people don't inject any bad stuff into your database. And so stuff don't break on your machine or on your server. So if you have to validate something, of course, you should validate both because user experience matters. But the first one to think about is validate on the server. This is really, really important and can cannot be stressed enough.
3: You mentioned monorepos and how you're working with it in your project. Is that how you would get your validation synchronized between the client and the server? Because you'd want to use the same code base. You'd want to have the same validations applied to both. So is that a good way to do that, to share that code?
1: This could be a good way to share the code. Um, I've seen people use Vest with npm packages of their own, so they share the validation. Although this can be really tricky to keep up to date as well because you have to bump uh, versions on both places people who use the same server, both as their application server and their server-side server, basically, they, both their front-end and the back-end usually have the same code base. For example, on Next.js, uh, they can share the same bundle or a uh, bundle with the same validations from the same server, which is very easy to use. And sometimes a monorepo is very easy to use as well because you have both your server code and the client code shared on the same place. And usually, if you if you're on a large company, you may have different teams using the same validation on different pages. For example, I want to be using the same email validation on multiple pages of the of the, of the site because I want to be using it on the password reset and on the login, and on the and on the sign up for example. So I have to be using it on different places of the site. So a monorepo is a good solution for all of those.
2: Are you ready for core web vitals? Fortunately, Raygun can help. These modern performance metrics play an important role in determining the health of your website, which is why Raygun has baked them directly into their real user monitoring tools. Now you can see your core web vital scores are trending across your entire website in real time and drill into individual pages to focus your efforts on the biggest performance gains. Unlike traditional tools, Raygun surfaces real user data, not synthetic, giving you greater insights and control. Filter your score by time frame, browser, device, geolocation, whatever matters to you most. And what makes Raygun truly unique is the level of detail they provides so you can take action. Quickly identify and resolve front-end performance issues with full waterfall breakdowns, user session data, instance-level diagnostics of every page request, and a whole lot more. Visit raygun.com today and take control of your core web vitals. Plans start from as little as $8 per month. That's raygun.com for your free 14-day trial. Yeah, I know previous jobs I've worked at, some of the challenges has been, we didn't
0: have an all JavaScript stack. The back end was Java or C Sharp or you know, God knows what. And it definitely was a struggle to keep the validation in sync, both in terms of the validations themselves, but also like the error messages, like figuring out like, what is the Java developer going to pass back? How am I going to show it and such? And I, I don't know if I have a great recommendation or answer because I don't think I've ever arrived at a, something I was <laughs> happy with using. I don't know if you have any experience with that where like the backend is like in a completely different technology. And if you've ever found anything that worked for you in those sorts of situations.
1: Yes, actually, actually I think this is a real problem for many people you who write JavaScript because they have to use their validations and they don't want to be maintaining the validations twice. And one solution I've seen, I don't know if I completely recommend it, but I see its benefits, is having a Node.js or JavaScript-based validation server on your premise or on your basically somewhere around your services. And whenever any request comes to your server, they, first of all, go and route it to the validation server and and check whether this is okay or not okay. And then it gets back the response. Now, since the users, uh, it should take only a couple of milliseconds on normal environments and uh, to uh, this round trip uh, from your application server to the best server or validation server. And the user would get the response pretty quickly. And usually you would only do it and submit and the user already expects it to take a couple of seconds. So this is okay.
0: That's actually kind of clever because I could see the people with on the backend servers kind of liking that approach as well because then they could almost write their code assuming the data is valid at that point. So mm-hmm. it's, it's very interesting.
3: One thing I know for sure is if it's Java, you're going to get a 200 back regardless of what you put out there, but it's gonna have in there, you know, re- result equals error. It's like, that's not a 200. I, do. I hate it when they give me back a 200, like
4: fake, psych. Oh, those are my fa- favorite APIs
1: by far.
3: <laughs> so you mentioned you had some issues going over to TypeScript. Talk to us about that because I'm a huge TypeScript fan. I'm just kind of curious what, what blocked you. Yeah,
1: so TypeScript, typescript works pretty well for basically everything but when you usually when writing an app but when you try writing a library in uh, typescript you have many things to accept expect that you don't have control over and you have to imagine what types the user would put in and you have to imagine how users would use your library And when working on VEST, I got into a big mess of gnarly generics um, because everything here is dynamic. For example, and I didn't tell much about the API behind VEST, but as I mentioned, we have a validation suite and we have a validation test and we have our assertions, which are similar to like expect in unit tests. So we have enforce and enforce takes a value and then you can chain uh, assertions to it infinitely. So you can ex- uh, you can enforce, for example, the number one, and then that it is a number, and that it's lower than ten, and that it is not an array, and that it's not a string. For example, um, this is uh, this doesn't make any sense, but you could do this forever. And to make this kind of chainability within TypeScript, uh, when you don't know whatever the user is going to put there. And when they uh, they are able to extend it with their own measures and their own their own enforcements, it's very hard to achieve. And this was the main problem for me.
3: I can imagine, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, did you actually go and take a look at like the Mocha typing just because like, uh, how they do it? I don't know. And um, we'll look through their stuff?
1: So no, I did not take a look. So I did not take a look at the Mocha typing or just typing because most of them don't allow infinite chaining, which I do uh, for API reasons and for brevity for the users, um, because everything they put in has to, be, has to be concise and small because I care about bundle sizes. And so I did not take a look at wh- how they do it, but it really, really was terrible um, to figure out how to do it. Maybe I should share the code with you and you will see what it was like uh, working on it. Yeah, you That'd can share really it, cool. but
0: we can make sure to throw it in the show notes mm-hmm. so people listening can refer to it and check it out as well. Get awesome.
3: a primer on TypeScript generics.
4: <laughs> <laughs> so how has it been since you've made this library actually getting it out to users to to try it and, uh, and tell you what they think of it? Because I think... Feedback is probably one of the most difficult things sometimes to get after you've built something.
1: Yes, definitely. And this is a pain point. But So one of the fears of first releasing open source code is that people are going to make fun of you and laugh at you. But the reality is that nobody looks at it and nobody knows and nobody cares. And you have to work really hard. For people to notice it so this was my main takeaway if you have to if you write your open source library don't stop pushing it don't stop mentioning it just lurk on twitter uh, create your own custom custom filters and whenever somebody says the word validation just storm over there and send links <laughs> yes this this is something i've done and a bit ashamed of it but not completely and one day one day, I even tagged uh, Kenzie Dodds, and I said because this is and an essentially a unit testing like uh, framework. And I said, uh, "Testing people, what do you think?" And that was, I think, the first break uh, that best had, and he just just tweeted interesting and shared my tweet, and that's it. Then the same day, from ninety stars, I went up to I think five hundred. Yeah, so. If I have one recommendation for people working on open source and getting out there is don't stop just just uh, keep pushing it because it's really hard there is an abundance of libraries and, and, and frameworks out there and people just don't have the time and people don't just don't have the attention and if you are if you're not working a, a, on it and make it your uh, primary goal to uh, to make it public, then it will just not get noticed. Yes, Yeah, developers, absolutely. Yep. Developers <laughs> Consistency say is
0: key. Oh, sorry. <laughs> and developers say they, they hate marketing, but I mean, it's, it's what you got to do, right? Like, that's, those are like traditional marketing tactics. Yeah, yeah it's, part it's just
4: part of the game, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it. <laughs> you know, the, the big libraries that have thousands of GitHub stars, it's not because they didn't say anything; it's because they were out there solving the problem, and enough people started to take notice that they really took off. But it's definitely something that I look at when I'm evaluating solutions that I want to use: is how many other people either have downloaded it from npm or have started on GitHub as something that they would, you know, use and come back to and and use again and again.
3: Yeah, relentless self-promotion is key. Well,
0: <laughs> I have to imagine, especially like the the form space, like. There are a lot of existing solutions out there, right? So it's it's an especially crowded market to try to break into. I will say you have an awesome logo. Is there a fun story behind the logo where that came from?
1: So I just created it with Illustrator. I played with it until I got it right. I had an idea of taking the letter V and combining it somehow into a vest, which is what I did. Um, And thank you for, uh, by the way, you're the first person who says it's a nice logo. (laughs) Nobody ever commented on that. Oh, it's really Uh, pretty. Thank you. But other than that, there is one main goal I had while working on this logo is keep the three dots or the three buttons on the on the uh, vest because this is the only reference I have to the Jest logo. If you'll see the the clown shoe that you have there are three dots. And I had to keep those as well because, again, this is a um, vest similar to Jest. Oh, so is the name itself based
0: off of Jest as well as where it came from?
1: Yes, yes. If Jest is for uh, JavaScript tests, this is for validation tests. Oh,
3: okay. I like it. (laughs) (laughs) So one thing is interesting, when you think about how open source projects get out there and get popular, you know, a lot of it is in Stack Overflow and articles and things like that, and also on GitHub repos and when people use it. And Copilot has been mining all that. And that's one of the things that interests me about Copilot is if Copilot is actually going to kind of stall out new open source projects, because it's not going to recommend the patterns for those new things. It's only going to recommend the patterns that it has for the older stuff. So I know you've been using Copilot a lot. Have you thought about Copilot in that context with your stuff?
1: So. I I can see what you say because I've been playing with Copilot quite a lot in the past couple of weeks since it came out. And I see the problem that it is solving or what it does efficiently. There are many things it still doesn't do very efficiently. And just to describe how I use uh, Copilot, I mostly use it for writing unit tests, which is an amazing job for um, Copilot because you describe what you want to happen. And it, has, it already has access to your repo and your code, and it knows how your repo works, especially if you have types inside. So it already knows everything about it. And it just generates the correct tests or with slight modifications, these are the correct tests. And usually it just generates like a whole suite of tests for me within seconds instead of minutes. And in terms of writing new patterns and, and coming up with new patterns, It didn't change the way I write my code. The only thing it did is completely complete me when I was doing repetitive tasks or adding stuff into my existing code. And I can see why what he say um, about installing new open source libraries. And I think it is not a safe tool for new developers, mostly because of that. It comes up. It comes with good recommendations sometimes, but sometimes it is just nonsensical. And if you cannot distinguish if it's doing something good or doing something bad, you should probably not be using it because it does add stuff to your code base and sometimes it's just not good enough.
3: That's one of the things I mentioned in a video that I did on on GitHub Copilot was there's a a line or a a maxim, I guess, in the the Pragmatic Programmer from Dave Thomas, which is, don't ship code you don't understand. And I think that's one of the things about Copilot is it's wonderful. But at the end of the day, it's writing code for you, and it's going to be in prod, and you can't really point at Copilot and be like, hey, that's the one that wrote wrote the bug. It wasn't me. It's like, no, 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 Don, you, you checked it in. So, yeah, it's fine to get recommendations from Copilot, but make sure that you actually go through it and understand it about what it actually wrote for you. One thing I wish Copilot did when I've tried it is it doesn't
0: give you much context for like where... Cause there there have been times where like I've used Copilot and said, like, oh, what suggestions do you have for me? And I find one of them interesting, but I kind of want to see more. Like, oh, like that's an interesting approach. But I'm curious how out like, you know, what the code looks like above and below. But copilot doesn't expose any of that. So, like, for all you know, like it came from random internet locations. So you don't have like the context you'd have. Like in a Stack Overflow post, usually you'd see like some explanation of it and like maybe some comments below it. But it's just like here's a regular expression, like, good luck sort of deal, which maybe it'll <laughs> evolve over time because I, I could almost see, I mean, given the structure they have, it could start to, like, they could start to allow you to, to perhaps, like, comment on things or link to things or have discussions. Like, there's there's <laughs> a lot of potential there.
1: So the only thing or the way I've been using uh, Copilot, and I think it works well when doing it, is when you have, like a very narrow context in which you get to work with it or tell it what to do. So if you write a unit test, you describe exactly what you want to happen or when you write a code comment or start a new function and you describe exactly what it should do, then it does the correct thing usually when it has enough context. But other than that, with you.
3: Yeah, I use it for getting auto suggestions as I'm creating components, right? When I do, when I've got an interface of, of I'm going to get, you know, this list of people or whatever, and I've already got that. And then I start typing use state. And it's like, okay, you are going to want a list of people and it automatically populates that for me. And then, oh, you're going to want to do a fetch on that. So, you know, I type in use effect and it automatically starts like filling out a, a fetch for me, which is actually really cool and really it accelerates me a lot. But again, I still have to understand I'm on the pilot. I'm the one who understands like where we're gonna go on this trip, right, going from point A to point B. And it's the co that's helping me along that way, but it's not actually, do, it's not gonna go and do stuff unless I want it to. So that's that's really the important part to understand around co There's a lot of cool so, use cases though. Yeah, so did co-pilot end
0: up fixing your TypeScript issues? Did you just go into your TypeScript config and just say like, I need chainable generics and that the, the, the spits <laughs> it out, there you go.
1: <laughs> no unfortunately i had to deal with this stuff myself i, I wish it could though maybe on the next iteration
4: <laughs> yeah that's probably a little ways down the line still but similar to to all of you i've i've enjoyed it but at the same time it's it can't know all the other logic or all the kind of mental model that you've made up in your head of how you want things to go so useful but but in, at the end of the day, like Jack said, it's still up to you to to say this code is doing what I expect it to. We can't completely depend on Copilot for that.
0: So one, I, I think, guess, uh, last question to shift gears just a little bit, just because I'm curious with maintaining open source projects like this, like VEST, when we speak to a lot of open source maintainers, a common theme is, you know, it's, it's a lot of work. You said you're doing a lot of this in your free time and such. I'm curious, what keeps you motivated to keep working in the open source world? Do you, do you have to deal with like a lot of like bogus PRs issues, things like that? Like what's, what's giving you enjoyment to, to keep working on this?
1: So um, I started working on the previous version of Vest, um, passable when I was working for a company for Fiverr. And then it was part of work. So I came up with this framework to get stuff working on Fiverr. And when I left Fiverr, it was like, okay, uh, I actually like this project. This is a new this is a, a really cool project. And working on it is my opportunity also to test a lot of my new ideas. So I wanted to play uh, with TypeScript and learn how to work with generics. So I started uh, writing Vest in TypeScript and create some crazy generics for it. I wanted to learn how how to write my own monorepo tool and utility. Not for anyone else to use, but just for myself. So I started working on it and... Currently, Vest works with my own tool. And every every something new I, I come up with, I somehow add to this repo or to this project specifically. So what keeps me motivated is basically I enjoy it. It's really fun working on it. I don't get many bogus PRs. I actually get pretty good PRs from people, usually with recommendations or suggestions or feature requests. Some of them don't understand the way Vest should or does work or the philosophy behind Vest. But most of them are pretty decent from people who want to be using Vest correctly. And and I really enjoy their feedback because this is the first uh, uh, information I get from real users not in a company I've been working at. Very cool and
0: good to hear. Always like to see positivity in the open source community and good examples of that for sure. Yeah, it could be harsh. (laughs) Well, this has been a lot of fun, There Are there any topics we haven't gotten to or are there any other questions on the panel? Anything we've missed? Sounds like no. So why don't we go ahead and
2: segue into our picks? Hey folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv/premium. Paige, do you want to kick us off?
4: I would be happy to kick us off. So, one or my pick for this week is going to be a um, an internet a site called Pipe Dream. I don't know if any of you have heard of it, but I I just came across it earlier this week, actually. And the, the premise of it is it is a, a low-code way to connect different APIs or different website APIs. So, for instance, one thing that I've been trying to do lately is connect to a discourse API and actually get things from the reports that it has. That it, So it generates these really nice reports if you're logged in. But you can also get a JSON version of any of these reports to, you know, pipe through to maybe an analytics tool or send on a cron job or anything like that. So when I was looking into possible ways to get this data out of discourse, Pipedream came across as a really user-friendly way to be able to connect, you know, my discourse API with anything else that I might want to pipe that data to. And one thing that's really nice about it is that if you are just a single person trying what, who is interested in trying it out, uh, they have a very high just individual user limit of about 10,000 interactions with Pipe Dream before they would start asking you to buy one of their priced models or one of their paid models. And so far, the documentation's been pretty good. The experience is, is nice. The interface is pretty straightforward and, and easy to get started with. So it's it's pretty neat. And it's got what looks like a ton of integrations with all sorts of popular platforms like Twilio and Discourse, Google Analytics, a whole, whole bunch of them. You just start typing one in and it'll show you everything that might match up with what you're searching for. So it's pretty cool. And I would say if you need to connect some APIs in a a programmatic fashion, this might be a good one to to check out.
3: Awesome. Jack, do you have any picks? I'm going to play proud dad today. My daughter (laughs) got onto a Valorant team called the Gun Gals. So I'm just going to go and plug them. I'd love to see women in gaming. So I think it's, it's great. And I'm just so glad that you know she's out there and and having fun and also making friends, doing this Valorant stuff. And and honestly, when I've seen the all women's tournaments and and heard them talk and chat, it's just so positive and so so friendly and fun. I think it's just it's great to see. So just yeah, gun gals. Awesome. I'm I'm actually going to keep the
0: the gaming theme going. I'm going to pick a game called Pokemon Unite, which is a new game for the Switch. It's a, it's kind of similar in that it's a five on five game. So it's a team-based game. It's similar to games like League League of Legends, but it's a lot more approachable being like the Pokemon brand and such. So if you're typically awful at those sorts of games, like I am, uh, it's a good choice just as it's pretty beginner friendly. I've been playing with my kids and we've been having fun with it. So uh, if you're a fan of games like that, or if you've been I guess, intimidated by games like that and are looking for like an easy entry point, Pokemon Unites, pretty cool to check out. And Evitar, what picks do you have for us?
1: So I recently bought uh, a nice little software called Run.js. Uh, I think it's on uh, runjs.dev. It's a small utility that serves like a desktop app or a desktop code console for JavaScript. You can install NPM packages onto it, it runs TypeScript, and it shows you on the right hand side of the website, of the application, uh, the result of everything you're doing. And if you just want to test stuff as you work, or as you try it out and you and to see the results, it just works um, magically and very fast. It is similar to how you would work with a sandbox, but it's just for um, for a console and it's really cu- uh, quick and it works amazing. So this is something I really recommend. Very cool. cool. You might
3: also want to check out uh, Quaka and Wallaby, which sort of do the similar sort of thing in, in the VS Code context. You can create like a, a worksheet and then just go for it. Quaka sounds made up. <laughs> <Is> it? <laughs> it's pretty cool. You paid. You yeah, you use quaka It's actually it's really fun. One of these yeah, times just... I am,
0: like especially in the JavaScript world, my pick is just gonna be totally made up. And I'm just gonna deliver it with a, <laughs> a very straight face and I'm gonna wait to see if anybody calls me out on it. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
3: you just have to like you go go make a, a made up site that's like, Ha-ha! you know, or or like they you know, get rickrolled, you know. Yeah, and but, like, ah, yes. Make the make the homepage look right,
0: but like the button rickrolls. <laughs> you sort of like the get started now sort of thing gets, yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> Every <Well, Avatar, I, laughs> This has been a lot of fun. I've learned a lot about Vest. My last question for you is for people that are interested and want to learn more, what's the best place to follow you to learn more about Vest? Um, where, where's the best place to send people?
1: So they can find me on uh, Twitter, even though I'm not very active there. They can as they can always uh, send me a message or shout at me. I, I'm always reading my notification and it's on at Alsh Editor um, in Twitter and it'll probably be in the show notes. And otherwise, they can go to vest.js.dev, uh, which has all the documentations like a link to the GitHub page. Awesome.
0: Awesome stuff. Well, thanks for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Learned it a lot about Vest and other things. And thanks, everybody, for joining us. And until next week. See you later.
2: Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit dot com to learn more.